Hello, everybody. This is Rob Fredette with the podcast HodgePod, and I have an awesome guest on today, Drew Ryder-Smith. Drew is a award-winning songwriter, producer, and company owner, but I'm going to let him tell you about that. And he has wrote songs for some pretty heavy hitters in the country music industry, and I'm super excited to talk to you, Drew, and thank you for joining my podcast. I'm truly honored you're on. Thank you. Yeah, Rob, thank you so much for having me, man. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. So one thing I always like to find out when I talk to like authors or musicians is how did they get into the business and what were the influences? So how did you get into and know you wanted to be in the music business right off the bat? I mean, I, I, you know, I wouldn't say that I knew that I wanted to be in the music business. I just wanted to do music and I wanted to do it um, as often as possible, as much as possible. And, and, uh, um, and, and, you know, that kind of, in order to do that, in order to do it for 10 hours a day, it, ha- it kind of has to become your job. And so then you're in the music business. So, uh, if I had my druthers, man, I'd, uh, I'd sit around at the house and not be in the music business. And I would just make music for, 10 hours a day and, and somehow get paid for it magically. So what was it like when you got into it? I also, uh, I like to do research on my podcast. I understand you used to work in radio at one time and I did as well, but you worked for a pretty awesome person and I'm here in Memphis and you're in Nashville. Is that correct? That's right, man. So you, yeah, you, you know, the Sam Phillips legacy. Well, I, I got to work for Sam Phillips in, in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, before he passed away. I and mean, that was a really, really great experience. Wow. And radio is a great business. I worked in it for about 10 years. So what was it like working for Sam? Did you ever have any contact with him? And uh, Sun Records is huge here in Memphis. I've been there a couple of times. But what was it like working? And uh, what did you do in radio? Because I'm always, uh, I did, when I worked in radio, I did sports and I did some DJing. But what did you actually do? When I was working for Sam, I was I was an on-air jock, and then uh, I was also assistant production director. Uh, I got promoted somehow accidentally to, to that position. I was young, man. And I was really young. I was probably way too young to be doing that job, but, um, but somehow they, they moved me up to that. And um, But working for Sam was really great. I mean, it's, it's hard not to be it's hard not to be inspired when you're working for a guy like that. I mean, the, the godfather of rock and roll mm-hmm. and he was still a wild catter, man, up until, you know, the last few days he, he was, uh, he still loved to throw parties and things like that, but he was, uh, yeah, he, he was a great guy to work for. It was a lot of fun. That's awesome. Uh, so what was, uh, what was the first, I guess the first influence that you had when you got into the music business, because I'm always fascinated by how people get into it and then it builds and builds and builds. So how did that start? Uh, The first influence that I can remember having was, uh, it came from a VHS tape that my parents had recorded, uh, the nitty gritty derby. And there was something about those guys, uh, I thought, man, I don't know. I don't know what it is that I want to, I want to do that. I want to be, I want to be that happy. I want to feel as good as that guy. And you could tell that the audience was the same way. They just had a great time. But um, that was that was probably my my first influence. 
and uh, from there, my my parents both were avid, still are um, avid music lovers, um, and they they listened to a little bit of everything. It's a, a pretty interesting collection of things between my my mom and my dad. And so I was exposed to a lot of different stuff from singer songwriter stuff like John Prine uh, to, you know, Merle Haggard and mm-hmm. Dolly Parton and Don Williams to Guns N' Roses and L.A. Guns and Nirvana and, uh, you know, the Eagles and Jackson Brown. So it was just a lot of different stuff. Van Morrison was another one that my dad you know, was really into. And, so just, I can't remember a time, Rob, when we were, when we were ever in the car and didn't have music going. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I, you know, I would ride with friends and stuff sometimes as a kid, their mom would, her dad would pick us up from school and like, they wouldn't even play the radio. I never understood that. It was so strange to me because when we got in the car, there was always something playing. There was always music playing and and um these big cassette cases that held like yeah <laughs> i don't know like 20 or 30 yep. cassette tapes and there was two of them in the car so we had a we had tons of records in the car and we just go through those tapes like crazy and uh, you know i think just being being around that so much mm-hmm just fed into uh, my my yearning to do it. Interesting, because uh, you said uh, Guns N' Roses and Nirvana, that's quite L.A. Guns. Those are quite different uh, different genres back in the 80s and 90s. And you also mentioned Jackson Brown. Jackson Brown's pretty awesome. His music is just phenomenal, the way he sings and uh, the instruments and things like that. Jack, They're just really uh, so what did you like about uh, like Guns N' Roses or Nirvana? I know you, you're in country now, but what did you take from those two groups? I always find that interesting, like different genres, people have influences. So what did you take from them? Man, I, I think just a, a, general, a general love of, of rock and roll. That I feel like that, man, that that was some of the greatest rock music that was made because it wasn't, it was not watered down at all. Nirvana was, um, I mean, even when I was young, you could tell that those guys just didn't, um, and I didn't really understand it until I was a little bit older, but there, there was something that you just, you inherently knew that those guys weren't doing it to be famous. They didn't start making records and, and touring because they wanted to be famous or they wanted to be millionaires. They just wanted to make music. And then, you know, later on in life, I, I figured out, I've seen so many interviews. I'm sure you have too, like Kurt Cobain talking about, I mean, he just thought that the fame thing was just such a joke. Uh-huh. He thought all the fame and fortune and <laughs> he, I saw, I saw an interview. Um, it was just a short clip of it the other day. We were talking about um, concert tickets. And and the ticket prices, and uh, they they were talking about like you know fifteen twenty bucks something yeah. like that, and and then somebody piped up and was like, yeah, but, you know, Madonna charges fifty, and he was like fifty dollars <laughs> for a ticket, 
and he was blown away by it. So he, I, again, you know, when, when that stuff was hot, I was, I was young, man. I wasn't even 10 years old yet, but there was something about that. It came through in their music that the, the, they were, they were, it was all coming from heart. Mm-hmm. The thing I, I loved about Guns N' Roses was those guys, um, it, it was so anthemic. I remember the first time I heard November Rain and it had, it had started with this, you know, piano and then strings came in and then the bass and the drums and the drums were massive. And it was, it was weird, you know, cause I was like, wait a minute, an orchestra doesn't go with, with these kinds of drums and that, you know, <laughs> crazy solo guitar and, you know, all that stuff, but it made perfect sense. And, um, so I think there was a lot to be gained or, you know, learned or picked up from, from, you know, all of those artists. Um, and, and then, you know, the flip side of that was, you know, to hear a Don Williams record or, or mm-hmm. Merle Haggard or, you know, whoever, um, on the countryside that just, to me, I related so well with that. I understood that my, my, my whole family is, you know, really hard workers. My, my granddaddy was a carpenter. Uh, Papa was a farmer and a mechanic, you know, and so those guys worked really, really hard for their money. And uh, I got a Weimaraner here that's driving me crazy. I don't know if you can see my. Yeah, that's okay. Right that's here. all right. That's no worry. That's awesome. <laughs> but, um, well, that's he's, he's a good boy. He's been at daycare today, and he's we're having. Well, I appreciate you coming on and uh, and all and uh, looking forward to learning more. So, Drew, you got a lot of feet in the fire with what you're doing. Uh, why don't you talk to uh, my audience about what you're doing? Because uh, you must be working 15, 16 hours a day. So, what is that like? And is it fun, or do you find it to be a grind? Man, it's it's both. And some days it is, you know, 15, 16 hour days and when I'm really in um, record mode, like we just put out a new EP uh, uh, earlier this summer. And the weeks and the months leading up to that were easily 12, 14, 16 hour days. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it, it's one of those things. I mean, I've worked, uh, I've worked eight hour days in construction uh, years ago. Yep. You know, before I was even 20, I've worked eight hour, eight hour days in construction that felt like uh, they were 16 hours long. And, and I've worked 16 hour days and <laughs> uh, in the music business, it felt like, you know, it was just it, it was only a few hours long. And so I certainly can't complain about it. The, the schedule is grueling sometimes. And, and then other times I make it grueling because I, I get so caught up in it. And I, I, I love it so much, you know, and you, you look at your, your watch and it's, you know, it's time for lunch. And then <laughs> it feels like an hour later, you look at it again, but it's all, it's nine thirty at nine. You just go, wow, man, where did this day go? But uh, I, I cannot complain at all, man. I've, I've been very blessed and, and I, I love to do, do this and uh, continue to be blessed to, to continue to be able to do this. Absolutely. I think that's fascinating. So how did you uh, become a songwriter? I find uh, songwriting, I'm just going to tell you, I love listening to music, all genres, 
but I, I don't know anything about a chord or a melody or a harmony, but I just know when I listen to music, I love music. So um, how do you write a song, develop a song, and also how do you how do you say I like this or I don't like that? And how long or is there a time, uh, a time frame that you want to get a song done? And uh, how does that work? Because I always find that fascinating when, from the beginning until the final product when you hear it and it sounds perfect. Man, I, you know, I, I would like to put a timeline on it and say, well, I'd like to, I'd like to write this song in 30 minutes because I've always envied people. I heard Alanis Morris said in an interview yesterday, interviews a few years old, but she was talking about um, the Jagged Little Pill album, which is, you know, a huge record and a great record. But she she said, you know, all of those songs, you know, I, I wrote them in like thirty minutes time, and wow. you know, didn't didn't edit anything, and um, it took about thirty minutes, and and still to this day, all every song I write takes about thirty minutes, and I'm just like, Mike, what is wrong with you? You've got to be an alien. Like, how are you knocking this stuff out in thirty minutes? And um, uh, God bless her and anybody else that can do it in thirty minutes. I've not been able to figure out the. The, the secret to making that happen. But, you know, it, typically in, in a writing room with, you know, one or two other people, we've, we've usually got one, you know, finished up by, by two or three o'clock. And, but I, you know, I never, I never put any pressure on myself to finish anything uh, that day uh, because I, I find that it puts pressure on other people. If I'm pressuring myself, then I'm, I'm, pressuring the other guys in the room and it, it comes when it comes. And if you've got something that's worth writing, then it's worth coming back to it in a few weeks mm-hmm. or whenever you can get everybody back together again. And it's, it's, it is absolutely every time it's worth the time investment. If it's a song worth writing. Right. And you had mentioned Alanis Morissette, that album, that Jagged Little Pill album was massive in the nineties, just massive. And, uh, you know, you would talk about huge, yeah, huge. And you would talked about, um, her taking 30 minutes to write a song. I love the Beatles and I like listening to their uh, previous albums and they have like on their, they have like take three, four, five, six, seven. And some of the takes that they do sound better than the original. It's amazing how they just kept doing, you know, takes, takes and takes. And I love that when you hear demos on our groups and things like that. So it's amazing how a, a song is formed and contrived. And the final product sounds perfect, like it's the way they want it. But that's interesting, you know, 30 minutes for her. And then you have to put, like, the music, get away from it for a little while and maybe go back to it and, and come back to it. Uh, if you have, like, a, is there such thing as, like, a music block or a writer's block? Oh, yeah, there for sure is. I, I don't, I choose not to acknowledge it. <laughs> um, but it's, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very real thing, and it's, Really, it stems from, and I've done a lot of research on this uh, because it, it, writer's block is a terrible thing to go through until you figure out how to how to manage it and how to get yourself through it. But um, it's you know really what it all comes down to is it, it, it being it's all fear based. You know, when you have writer's block, it's not because you're not inspired. It's not because you don't have anything to say. It's it's because you're afraid of something, whether that's not mm-hmm. finishing the song or that it's, uh, you know, is it any good or am I any good or have I lost my touch? You know, it's, it's a number of things, but yeah, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the writer's block is is a is a very serious thing. You were talking about the demos. The um, on jagged little pill. There's a couple of songs I would love to. I'd love to tell you what they are, Rob. <laughs> but I'm I'm scared that I will I will misquote and tell you the wrong songs. But there's a couple of them that, and I think they were both hits that were actually the demos. It was it was her demos. It was. Um, she and Glenn Ballard, I think it was his name, was the guy that she co-wrote so many of those songs with, and and um, wow, they would do a quick demo, and yeah, a couple of those on that record, uh, they tried to record, and they were like, "We can't beat the demo, so we're just going to use the demo," and that ended up being <laughs> on the record. That's fascinating. That's awesome. So, also while doing, uh, uh, first of all, learning about. Uh, doing my research for here uh you are a award-winning songwriter so you wrote you've written songs for some pretty pretty awesome country music artists so why don't you talk about that because that is very impressive man it, it you know it, it doesn't really mean anything um and, and i say that with all sincerity because it's you know every every time i write uh, I'm trying to beat those songs mm-hmm. that I've been successful with. Again, I'm, I acknowledge that I'm very blessed. Um, I'm so blessed to have had what success I've had as a songwriter, especially in Nashville. It's a tough town, man. Uh, and so I'm very grateful for those accolades and those things. But, you know, I don't even have, I've got gold records, man, and I don't even. I don't even have any. Like I, I bought my mom and my dad both. Um, my parents are divorced, and so I, when I got my first gold record, I, I, I got a, a plaque, a gold record plaque. Wow! And I bought my mother one and my father one, and <clears throat> those are those are great. I enjoy seeing them over at their house because I know that they're proud. But I don't even, I don't even have one anymore. Uh, I've got some other Canadian stuff. I think it went, I think it went gold and, you know, some other things, but I don't, I don't have those things hanging up anywhere. Um, because I'm just trying to, I don't want to get heady about it. Uh, I just, um, I want to get up and write the best song that I can write that day. That's, that's unbelievable. You know, you had mentioned Nashville's a tough town. What, how competitive is Nashville with, uh, uh, up and coming or uh, in aspiring music artists or groups. How, how, how competitive is that in that, in that field? Well, it's, um, it's just so saturated. I, I used to call it competitive, but it, it's, it's, you know, we're not trying to, we're not, we're not trying to beat each other up or anything to get cut, but it's just, there's the damn many of us, Rob, and, and we're, we're all trying to do the same thing. And, and there, man, there's so many talented people in Nashville. And so it's, um, it's, it's just, it, you've, you've got to do whatever it takes to stand out and you have to, you have to be doing something different musically or lyrically to be able to stand out from all the noise because it is so saturated with so many great artists and so many great writers. And if you're not doing something different, then you're, you're just another guy or girl in town. Wow. 
from your take, it's it's you said it's saturated, but it's probably competitive on their end. But that's incredible. Last summer, I went to uh, Nashville the first time in many years and went on Broadway there, and that place was lit. Although it was rocking down there, <laughs> it's wild down there, ain't it? <laughs> man, I it w- gets it gets wild in Memphis too, though, man. Yeah, I know. It, Memphis is uh, Memphis is a great town. It's got its stack. We had the Stax Museum and Sun Records, and of course Elvis and Graceland. But we were there. Uh, uh, we went down there a couple of nights, and you know, Kid Rock has a place, and there's a few other country music artists that have places down there, and that place was lit. I mean, nonstop. It was unbelievable. <laughs> it's wild, man. You know, Garth is about to open a place, and then uh, Luke, yeah, Luke Combs has a has a bar. I have mixed feelings about that. I love Luke. Um, he's he's an incredible artist, but they're putting it in in what used to be the uh, the Wild Horse Saloon, hmm. and I I grew up watching live from the wild horse saloon on TNN when I was a kid. That's been years ago, but, um, uh, yeah, so he's going to have a huge place there. Derek Spindley has a place, Jason Aldean, Lou Bryan. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so many people, Alan Jackson. So, um, you know, yeah, a lot, a lot of those guys, it's kind of become that instead of it being, you know, just a bar name. Now it's, you know, this person's bar and that person's bar. Miranda's got a place there. So um, it's, it's pretty wild, man. And Nashville's changed a lot over the years. It's, it's it's pretty crazy. We loved it there. We had a great time. We want to go back and check it out. That was just like, that was awesome. So I remember when we were downtown there, the, the Ryman Auditorium's there. You've played there as well, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Ryman's great, man. The Mother Church. Yeah, Yes. What was that like? Because uh, uh, you played in front of some pretty, uh, I didn't realize it was only like, you know, a little less than 2,700 seats, but uh, it is uh, it is quite the uh, place. And I did some research, but, you know, just picked the date out of the, uh, out of the blue, a, a year out of the blue. I mean, you performed there, and uh, there, I mean, it's incredible the acts that have played there in 2003. I'm just going to rattle off a few here. Annie Lettix played there, Willie Nelson, Kenny Rogers, The Pretenders, Vince Gill, Amy Grant, Emmy Lou Harris, Kansas, Paul Rogers played together, Keith Urban, Steve Earle, Cheryl Crow, Peter Frampton, Robert Craybrand, Train, and Lisa Marie Plessley played with Chris Isaac. So you have played on that stage there with all those acts. That is very impressive. Yeah, that's pretty wild. What, what year did you say that was? Two thousand three. Two thousand three. I just wanted to pick a year out of the uh, out yeah. of the blue, and just but isn't that isn't that cool though that you can do that? You can you can just pick a year yeah. for the Ryman, and the the that year's shows are just it's that kind of lineup. Yeah, man, I, that's the thing. It's the when you play the Ryman, the seats don't scare you. It's the it's the atmosphere <laughs> and knowing who all has stood on that stage. I mean. You know, Hank Williams Sr. And, uh, I mean, my God, uh, Patsy Klein and wow. you know, George Jones and everybody has played the Ryman. Uh, the Foo Fighters have played the Ryman. So to to be on that stage, it's a, man, it's a really, really special thing. Uh, really special thing. But, yeah, it's a terrifying – you asked what it's like. It was it was a terrifying experience. That's what it was like because <laughs> you just go, wow, man, I can't – you know, yeah. all this history here, right here where I'm standing, you know, it's it's wild. But, um, 
makes you want to go back and, and do it again. But it was, it was, yeah, it was really wonderful, man. So uh, I, I love nostalgia. I love looking back at like concerts. I went to the eighties and the nineties to see what the set lists were. Cause you can go to setlist.com. So what was it like? Did you ever have a moment when you, before you went on stage there for the first time you, you went like, did you have to like take a step back and just say, wow, or was it, yeah, you said you were terrified, but did you get some gratification when you played at Ryman? I'll tell you what saved me, Rob. Um, I, I've told this story several times, and I, I've always loved telling this story. Uh, what saved me was years ago, I had this bass player. I was playing on Broadway, and uh, I had I was, I was playing a Friday night somewhere on, on Broadway. It might have been Paradise Park or something, but I, I was putting a band together, and I called, I called this bass player in town, and uh, I said, hey, Cliff, um, they they want us to play Friday night. Can you can you come play bass? And oh yeah yeah man yeah I'd love to. And, and he said um, he said now uh, listen he said just to let you know he said I'm playing the Opry at the Ryman. Whoa. Um, and and so it, if I'm just a few minutes late, don't panic. I will be there. He said I'm just gonna I'll, I'll run out of the back door of the ramen and I'll run straight down the street and I'll I'll be there. But if I'm a few minutes late, don't worry I'm I'm coming. And I was like, all right, man, that's awesome. <laughs> I got off the phone with him and I, oh, man, it's crazy that he's playing the Opry, and then he's gonna run down the street and come play with me. That's crazy. So we played the show that night and um, we got done and and I was talking to Cliff and I I said, man. That's so cool that you played the 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 Ryman before coming down here. So, you know, what's that like? What, what's I, I can't I can't imagine what that must be like. And he said, you know, Drew. He said, um, <clears throat> excuse me. He said uh, the first few times I played there, he said I couldn't even enjoy it. Huh. He said I was so overwhelmed wow. with the idea that I'm playing at the Ryman or I'm playing the Grand Ole Opry. He said, I, I, it just, it blew my mind so much that he said, when I went out there, it was just deer in headlights. He said, I, I, I walked out on stage and then something happened for a few minutes. And next thing I knew I was in my car heading home. Wow. And he was like, it was just, you know, it was like, I just blacked out. And he said, it was like that the first few times that he played because it was so overwhelming. Mm. And he was like, you know, it's great now because I've, I've, I've I've gotten better with that and I've I've learned to just enjoy the moment. And there was something about that conversation that stuck with me. And so fast forward, you know, years later and I'm I'm getting ready to walk out at the Ryman. And I remembered that conversation and I went, Okay, man, you you've really <laughs> you gotta calm down here or else you're gonna wake up tomorrow morning and not remember anything. So just take it slow and just, uh, you know, live in this moment because hmm. you don't know, you'll never get this back. Wow. You know, even if you play the rhyme in a, a thousand times in your life, you're never going to get this moment back. So just, you know, take some deep breaths and calm down. And once I had that conversation with myself, wow. I was able to chill out and I was able to, to really live in that space and in that moment. And it was a, it was a really great thing. So I'm so grateful to Cliff. He, you know, he had no idea that he was giving me 
the type of advice that he was giving me. Uh, he, he had no idea that he was saving me from myself, you know, but he, he, I'm so glad that we had that conversation because I, I do remember that performance well. And I remember before it and after, and I remember the lights coming up and the lights going down, <laughs> and, you know, the whole thing. And I, I would have never, I would have never been, you know, truly present for that moment had we not had that conversation. That's incredible. Cause uh, you know, you, when you, uh, you know, this is a sporting event. Uh, I'm going to use an analogy. I guess you'll hear people say like when they play in the Super Bowl, it's different because everything is so fast. They have to settle down. It's just the, the enormity of the event play the game or you, you play in front of people, but you're at a place, which is, which you said it was the, the, the place of the church of country music here, the mother church. And that is where it is. And that, that you were able to get in the moment and uh, take some deep breaths. And also you uh, performed in pretty, in front of some pretty, uh, pretty awesome folks, uh, performers in there. Yeah. I, uh, you know, yeah. I, I commend people who can perform in front of stage. Cause if I ever were, a, I could never do that. Cause I would just like freeze and I wouldn't remember anything. So Anybody who can get up on a stage and perform, I I commend them. I think it's unbelievable how that people can remember lines, how they can play instruments. It's unbelievable. So I, I commend everybody who does that. So um, what was that like playing in front of those uh, those major you know artists? I mean, someday you you're going to be there. Man, it was um, it, it was really great. So I was I was opening for Merle Haggard, and he always did two nights at the Ryman, and it was because. You know, originally he he would do, you know, one show a year at, at the Ryman. And what they figured out was that uh, none of the Merle Haggard fans outside of the music industry were able to get tickets because the tickets would go immediately uh, to industry people. Anybody in the music industry in Nashville would buy up all the tickets. And so he never had he never had fans outside of the industry that got to see him in Nashville. So they added a second night. So it, it, it became Merle doing two nights at the Ryman. The first night was always industry people. And then the second night you would, you would get, you know, fans outside of the music industry. Mm -hmm. And so I was, uh, I was playing night one. And, and so I say all that to say being on night one, like everybody was there, man. Uh, Keith Urban and Nicole Kidman and Tim and Faith and, um, wow. God, I think Charlie Daniels was there. John Prine was there. Uh, it was just so many, so many great artists uh, that, that were there that night. And then, you know, industry professionals as well and, and peers and things like that. So it was, um, yeah, man, it was a great opportunity. Wow, that's phenomenal. So let's talk about some of your music. Uh, uh, I love the song, The, bot the Bottom of It. I, uh, I love that song. Um, but tell us about your, uh, Thanks. your music that's come out this year and, uh, uh, talk about that if you could, please. Yeah, for sure, man. I, I appreciate your kind words on the bottom of it. I, I like that one too. It's a, it's one of my lighter songs. Um, I, I have a tendency to write a lot of ballads and that's, that was not a ballad. So, uh, I, I need to write more of those, <laughs> but uh, yeah, man, the, e the EP was really a ton of fun to make. It was, um, Myself and, and a buddy of mine, Russell Jackson, we co-produced it together and we played pretty much uh, just about everything on the EP ourselves. 
And so it was a very collaborative effort. And, um, man, we had a great time making it. And I, I've been writing songs for a living for 13 years now. So the, I had all the material and then some, you know, so it mm-hmm. was just a matter of, of, uh, Russell and I getting, getting in a room together and, and putting it together and trying to serve the songs as best that we could. Hmm. That's, uh, so like, uh, like, like the song, the bottom of it, how long, what, uh, how long did that take? And if you can remember and elaborate and, uh, what, uh, what was that like, uh, when you knew that, that the final product is what you were going to go with? Well, I know that, um, I wrote that with, uh, Logan Wall and Jason Sieber and, uh, we wrote that, I don't know, in like three hours or, or so. As far as the production went, um, Russell and I, man, we, so Logan did a demo at his studio the day that we wrote it. He had down basic drums and bass and guitar. And, um, by the end of the day, he had finished the demo and, and sent us the MP3s of it. And so, but Russell and I both really loved the demo. Logan was singing on it. And Russell and I had sat down and we were, we were working on the drums and I was like, man, I, you know, the drums are there. Like I know the drums are there, so that something is not working. And it was, we finally figured it out. It was a guitar thing, but man, we spent, you know, that was one of the slower ones. Sometimes you go into record stuff, especially if you're not multi-tracking uh, with a band mm-hmm. when you're not using a live band to do it. Um, you, you can still, you know, knock out a song in a day uh, if, mm. you know, if you're a decent musician. But that one was was a bit of a struggle because it was we just couldn't the way that Logan had pocketed the guitars with the drums. There was something just really special about it. And it took us really messing with it uh, to be able to get there and be happy with it. And, but yeah, it was it was a full day just recording guitars. I know that, and so I would say the the entire process. Really, that song is is one of the more stripped down songs on the EP. Mm-hmm. As far as instrumentation, there's not that much. I think there's um, a couple of guitars on on there, and then drums and bass, and I think uh, I think a B three and maybe a Rhodes piano, uh, and then vocals. And so there's just it's. You know, to compare it to the other songs on the EP, it was just it was almost bare bones, you know. But it was it was exactly what we were going for, um, and everything's really laying back, other than you know the drums and guitars. Everything's really is is really laying back and letting the vocal and, and the the rhythm uh, section kind of do what it does. Uh, but I would say in total. Uh, you know, from the time that we we started recording parts to the time that it was mixed, I, I would say it took maybe you know five or six days total. Wow! To get that one down, vocals and like I said, mixing and everything. You know what I find fascinating too is with groups and, and artists, and when they're getting their songs and they're playing them, it's amazing how like a guitar player and, and you know electric guitar, bass, and then the, the drummer it's amazing how everybody works in sync and knows when to play the chord or hit the, you know, to do, to do drums. 
exactly at that time. It's amazing how everything is in sync. And then when the final product comes, I like looking at the blocking and tackling, you know, from, from my view, it's just amazing how, uh, you know, musicians are able to, to do that in a song. And it's, it's really great when you see him in the, like recording in the studio, or if you see him out on the concert, what's your feeling on that? Oh yeah, no, I, I totally agree, man. And I love, I love live tracking with a live band in the studio. There's something about that uh, that is there's something about that feeling the first time they start playing through it and you just go, Oh my God, it's got legs, you know, like (laughs) this song that you came up that you, that you showed up with that was just a simple guitar vocal recording on your your phone is now this, Mm. it's this big production and, and it comes to life. And I've never gotten over that feeling hearing it for the first time the way that Russell and I've been doing things you know it's that's a different process because he and I are we're literally playing everything on the EP ourselves so there's not there's not this this um this big you know oh my god moment where it all comes together because it's just he and I you know Mm -hmm. so it's like all right there's the drums those feel good so now let's record bass. Okay, those feel pretty good together. So now let's add some guitars. And do we need piano on this? Do we need a D three? Do we need, you know? And and it it's um it's a different process. And sometimes you don't have that that magic feeling, and until um you get you know towards the end or or maybe you you know you find a a weird um a weird patch, uh, like a, a, you know, an effect or, or a, a synth patch or something that, that just kind of takes it over the top, you know? And it, yeah. It's just, a, it's just a different process, man. Uh, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it's, it does. Um, it does. And, uh, you know, each song may be different too. Like, uh, you know, when you get that feeling, well, okay, now we're making progress. Is that maybe some songs are maybe easier that way? Cause I find that you, like you said, like you hear it for the first time, it's like, wow, you get that traction, that, that excitement, that buildup. And then I guess the motivation and the grind of doing it, I guess it makes it easier. Um, uh, does it make live tracking easier? You know, just, 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 uh, pretty much just getting the song, uh, up and running and getting the song moving, you know, in the direction that you, what you think your vision for the song. Yeah. When, when Russell and I are working together, as opposed to, as opposed to, um, you know, live tracking with, with a full band in the studio, like I said, you get that, that, oh my gosh moment. Um, when he and I are, are doing that, it, it always seems to be one instrument that will go, Oh, that's it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's never drums and bass, you know, cause it's, those are the foundations and you can, you, you typically, it would be very backward to, to start a recording with, you know, recording just a guitar part. Right. And then going back and said, okay, we'll add drums after the fact. It, it just doesn't, you know, so it's like if it, you kind of have to imagine all the other parts when you're recording drums, you've got to imagine all those other parts and then, and then you add bass and then it's, again, it's usually a guitar or it's a piano or it's an organ or mm. some other weird instrument that, that, that you can come up with um, that, 
that you you go okay now yeah. now it feels like something and then that supercharges everything because it'll you know it'll it'll kind of change your uh, your position where, you know, in Jay Joyce, who's a, a incredible uh, producer in, in Nashville, he's like this. He will, um, he will find a sound or an instrument or he will, uh, he, he will manipulate an instrument to get, you know, this weird, unique sound. And he will kind of lead the, the recording <clears throat> with that sound and he will build around that sound. Some, some of the, some of his accolades are Eric church and, um, little big town and, and so many others, but I could go on and on with the, his list of credentials, but he's just, he has a very, very, when you hear Jay Joyce records, regardless of the band or artist, you go, Oh yeah. Jay, Jay Joyce definitely had his hand in this because he, he just, he approaches it very differently. And so all that being said in our process, we will, we will find something that gives us that aha moment Mm -hmm. and it will, it will start to reshape the song because you'll go, okay, well, if, so we love this, we know this works. This Mm -hmm. is what has made what we've got so far feel like it's alive and, and that it's moving around. But now that we hear that, maybe the drums, maybe it needs to be a different kit, different sounding drums, or maybe the bass needs to do this instead of what we originally had. So it it can kind of dictate other things, but that's when it gets really exciting. Wow, that's that's awesome. What about, uh, are you out uh, touring or performing uh, in the next few months? Man, I've been doing some shows. I've been doing some TV as well. Um oh. Uh, I just played, um, where did I just play? Uh, did a two or three shows in Virginia, uh, maybe a week and a half ago. I did a show in Charlotte, North Carolina after that. And then, uh, I did an event this past weekend in, in DC. And so I've been, uh, I've been hard at it, man. And, 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 this is a time of my year that things start winding down, but I've still got a few things left to do. But I, I don't care. Uh, I'll play at your mom's house. I don't. I don't care. Need, <laughs> I'll, I'll play wherever they'll let me. You need to come to Memphis, please. <laughs> Man, I would. I'd love to come to Memphis. I love it over there. Hey, I, I really enjoyed. Uh, this is just a side note. Uh, but for your your listeners who m- maybe haven't heard this episode yet, I loved your Elvis episodes. Well, thank you very uh, much. Thank you. That, that you did recently. Well, yeah. Thank you, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate that. The, yeah. Man, I, I so enjoyed the uh, the news clips that, that you had and um, your sister-in-law being on there. I, I love hearing, I mean, as sad as it is, I, I love hearing uh, – people's stories of where they were that day and what they were doing when, when they heard that Elvis Presley had died. Yeah. Because uh, everybody has a different and unique story. And, and it's always, I just, I love to hear people recount that because it, it affected everybody. I mean, that was, you know, the king of rock and roll, man. And all of a sudden he was just gone. 
was such a, a devastating hit world worldwide. Oh, huge! I was uh, I was twelve years old when he passed away. I remember where I was. I was in hockey camp up in uh, New England. Parents picked me up, and I always liked looking at news clips of things that happened. And Memphis was absolutely besieged. I mean, they had to call out the National Guard on Elvis Presley Boulevard, and it was absolute pandemonium here when that happened. And he'd be eighty-eight years old if he were still if he were living today. And at forty-two, it's just so young. It's just unbelievable. Like to this day, it's hard to believe. And I always think, like being here in Memphis, did he drive down here? Or did he go here? Or did he do these things? I always, I don't know. I, I'm big into like where people what they did here. But uh, I really appreciate you uh, saying that. That means a lot. Thank. You. Yeah, for sure, man. And I'm I'm the same way. I've always kind of thought that that was a, a weird thing about me. Because I'm I'm also extremely nostalgic, uh, probably to a fault. Um, but because I can I can really get caught up in nostalgia. But I, I'm the same way. I'll go some somewhere. You know, I mean, Memphis is a great example of that. And you go, man, I wonder, wonder if the king was ever here. You know, and, and uh, because we, you know, it's just it's such a. It's such a magical thing to be in the same space as someone like that. One of my favorite uh, audio clips that you played on, I think it was part two yeah. of your Elvis uh, show. One of one of my favorite clips from that was uh, <laughs> they were interviewing a guy and and he said, oh, "I just loved Elvis. He was, he was such an influence on me, and not you know not just musically, but as a person. You know, he just the way he lived a good, clean life." <laughs> I, was, I don't know about all that now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, well, you know, it's weird. It's weird though. When um, I remember that it was up in, uh, he was supposed to perform in Portland, Maine, right after. I mean, literally, he was going to be there up in Portland, Maine, to perform two shows. And his uh, advanced team was already up there, and it's just like an eerie feeling when they were in the arena. News clip is on on YouTube, and I found it, and it was just really eerie. But yeah, he was really distraught, and uh, the people that were at the arena were just like blown away. They 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 couldn't believe that they thought it was rumors, and then when it finally came out, it was absolutely unbelievable. But yeah, that uh, that was really, I mean, a shock for everybody. Yeah, I I, I even um, one reporter from a clip that that you played was saying, you know, we've we've uh, we've checked our resources not only <laughs> here locally but but internationally as well. Mm-hmm. Like they you know, those guys were they were scrambling to figure out if that if, if it was true because how could it be true? How how is the king of rock and roll dead at forty two years old? Yeah, it's just it, you know, how is it be Elvis Presley not with us anymore? And so much it was so hard to believe. That they they were scouring you know resources uh, worldwide to mm-hmm. see if they could get a definitive answer on it. It was really incredible. Yeah, it was, and uh, you know that when that happened, like uh, one of the news reports, Burt Reynolds and Margaret came to the back entrance of uh, Graceland. So, I mean, you don't get any bigger than than Elvis Presley. It was just I, pre- I appreciate that. Those are nice, kind words. I appreciate that, Drew, and uh, I, I really do. Just well, have- I. I, I uh, you you mentioned uh, I'm doing the interview now. By the way, Rob, um, <laughs> it, it, you you mentioned then uh, in in the Elvis special. I call it an Elvis special because it, you don't hear many podcasts that 
that, that, that point the direction that you did with that. So I appreciated you doing that. I thought, I thought it was great. Thank you. But, um, I heard, I heard you mentioned in that episode or one of those episodes that you, you had not seen the Elvis movie yet. Has that changed? I have, I have seen the Elvis movie and it was rather, uh, rather, uh, unbelievable it was totally, if that's true, I, I was just like, I felt bad for him because the people that were close to him were very, very dependent on him. And then he just never got any peace, never got any peace. Yeah. Yeah. I, I felt the same way, man. It, it, it gave me the exact same feeling. I felt, I felt so bad for everybody. I felt I was sad for Elvis. I was sad for Priscilla. I was sad for Lisa Murray. I mean, just everybody that was close to him because it, it was, as you said, you know, there was, he just, he never, he could never have any peace. And, uh, you know, to know that he left the world that way, uh, must've been, I mean, it's, it's difficult for me to comprehend, but it must've been, so devastating for for his family and his his close friends, the people that weren't taking advantage of him. But um, I I loved the movie. I, I thought it was so well done. Uh, by, is it Boz or Baz Lorman? I, I think is his name. Boz Lorman. Yes. I thought he had uh, an incredible eye and incredible vision. Um, the the way that he he put that movie together, I wasn't expecting it to be that way at all cinematically that is but it was it's really really beautifully done it was and i liked the part in the movie when uh when uh, he was performing and the, the the boyfriends of the uh of all their dates the uh, the boyfriends were mocking him because he was wearing i think I remember it was a, p- a pink jacket and then he started da- singing and doing his uh his hip moves and everything like that and all the all the dates all the women were you know screaming and all the boyfriends were all like stand like like what's going on i thought that was great cuz they were mocking him and uh that the history changed everything and you know what in tom hanks i forgot tom hanks you know, when tom hanks played tom, uh, colonel tom parker i got lost i forgot that was tom hanks not, not tom hanks in the movie i thought that was uh he played that part awesome Man, he, um, my partner and I, we uh, maybe halfway through it, or maybe, maybe we had just finished it. And I, I said, you know, I'm, I'm having a hard time remembering what Colonel Parker looked like. And, uh, I said, but they did so much to Tom Hanks in that, uh, you know, physically and aesthetically. <laughs> and so I Googled it and I showed her and I said, oh my God, he's a spitting image. He's a yeah. spitting image of him. But I, you know, I'm like that with Tom Hanks in pretty much any Tom Hanks movie. He's so brilliant uh, that you you just you forget that it's Tom Hanks, whatever role he's playing. He is that person. Yeah, I saw uh, Saving Private Ryan a couple of months ago in that opening scene of Private Saving Private Ryan when the boats are going up onto uh, for D Day and his his hands are shaking. It, it was just. Uh, he played that part, Saving Private Ryan, getting off on a tangent here. That was a magnificent performance by him and all those actors. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, uh, well, I, I want to just get one more take on Nirvana, uh, best unplugged album of all the unplugs. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> man. Absolutely. And I uh, I listened to, I actually listened to that recently. I mean, within the, like, probably the last week or so. 
and then I, I kind of went down the rabbit hole because I was like, man, those records were, were so much fun. So then I listened to the Alice in Chains oh, uh, Unplugged in New York yeah. album. That That's a great one, too. But yeah, man, the Nirvana MTV Unplugged in New York, uh, I, I think, was the best of that series. I wish they would bring that back. Yeah, um, they stopped that years ago. It's, but- it's, it's a shame. Well, I guess because everybody that was on there died. Maybe that was what it was. It and they were be. like, we got to stop making these. You know, we're killing all these artists. <laughs> My favorite song off the, uh, off the Unplug is Lake of Fire. I love that song. Just It's a short song. It just, man, it just sucks me in every time I listen to it. It's amazing. There's there's something so endearing about his uh, his voice in that, in that bridge bar, you know, the... People cry, people yeah. moan, look for a dropless collar home. The the way that he sings it though, man, there's just there's the, um there's so much pain there and, and it uh I I thought that was one of his his best performances. And I it it's um I was working on something when I was listening to that last week and and uh and I, I don't remember what song it was, but I the harmonies caught my attention and and i was like man that's a cool harmony part and i went oh my god that's dave grohl like it's you forget that it's dave grohl that was sitting behind the drums on oh, yeah. those recordings and and uh and, and singing as well um that guy is uh he's such an inspiration i, I mean he's uh he's been through a lot but but to come from behind a drum kit for one of the biggest grunge bands in history to starting his own band and being a front man. I, I can't imagine uh, the, the integrity it takes <laughs> yeah, to be able I, yeah, to do that. Absolutely. And he is also in the rock and roll hall of fame for Nirvana and Foo Fighters. So that's a huge uh, accomplishment. And, uh, he has a charisma about him as well, and so did Kurt. He had some. He had a lot of charisma. Um, when you look at interviews, or just even in that unplugged album, he just had a connection with the audience. It was amazing. I wish that would have. We could have seen that more. That it was just totally awesome. It really was, man. I I would argue that I think that Dave Grohl might be the greatest rock and roller that's ever lived. Hmm. Uh, and and I, I say that because of the, um, you know, I mean, the guy, it's it's been, what, maybe five or six years ago now, he fell off stage in a foreign country. He broke his leg. He went backstage. I think they took him to the hospital. Mm-hmm. The band played some songs while he was gone. He comes back in a cast and in a wheelchair. And he plays the entire show. That's incredible. Yeah, that was and 2015. I remember broke. They, they called it 15, the broken okay, leg. Yeah. They broke. They called it the broken leg tour. I think after that. <laughs> yeah, and then you know he had a uh, he had like this you know throne built to finish off that tour with, so he could sit comfortably and play guitar <laughs> and. You know, but uh, and I, it's, it's stuff like that. That one instance doesn't make you necessarily a, the the greatest rock and roller of all time. But it's it's everything else that the the dude has been through from 
being in Nirvana, being the drummer for Nirvana, the guy that created the uh, the opening of Smells Like Teen Spirit, you know, that that's this song starts with drums. It doesn't start with guitar. It starts with drums. And it's it's when when you when that song comes on the radio or it, it's on your playlist, you know, on your phone or whatever, all you have to hear are the the drums of that. You could cut you could cut out that dry electric guitar part. If you just heard the da 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 da, you <laughs> yeah. know that smells like Teen Spirit. <laughs> yeah. You know, and and but it's that moment when that song comes to life. It's it's not the guitar part. It's it's as soon as the drums hit. That's when that song starts for me. And then Tom Petty, uh, you know, he he played. Um, Tom Petty was uh, he was in between drummers. He and the Heartbreakers, and they were playing Saturday Night Live, and they. They, they called Dave Grohl and Whoa, said, really? hey, man, can you come play drums? Yeah, you should look it up. I man. am. It's, I'm going to look on, that up. Wow. It's on YouTube. And he played Honey Bee. And I forget what else they performed on, on SNL. But, but yeah, his um, he was between drummers. The guy named Steve Ferroni plays drums for him now. The Heartbreakers really only had two drummers, I think, the, the, the entirety of mm-hmm. their career before Tom died. Ferroni was their second one, and I can't remember the first guy's name. But Ben Montez. Um, no, 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 no. Ben Mont was on okay. keys. Um, but in, anyway, that the original drummer had left, and they hadn't found Steve Ferroni yet. And so they, yeah, they they called Dave Grohl and said, "Hey, man, wow. can you come play drums?" And so he did. And then um, recently, I learned that that Tom had. Uh, had offered him uh, a, a full-time role Whoa. in 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 the Heartbreakers, and he says, "You know, we we travel differently. You know, we all have <laughs> our own bus. If you want to come out, you'll have to get your own bus, and you have to, you know." And um, oh, but but he wanted to. He really wanted to pursue the Foo Fighters thing. So how do you turn down Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers? Oh my God! You know, I don't one know. of yeah. one of the greatest rock and roll bands that will ever be. So I think it's it's a combination and a culmination of all those things that that Dave has done and that he's interesting. Yeah, conti- that he continues to do. I, I yeah, I would, I I would, uh, I'd stand on Keith Richards' coffee table and and say that Dave Grohl is the greatest rock and roller. That's that's ever lived. Wow, that's awesome. That is awesome. Well, I appreciate you talking a little bit rock and roll, and I enjoy talking to you about your your music and uh, your some of your songs and uh, and your your career so far. And um, I really appreciate. I uh, cannot thank you enough. I'm truly honored you came on my podcast. I hope you would come back on maybe in the in the near future again. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, Rob, the pleasure is all mine, man. Thank you so much for your time, and thank you for having me. I, I'm, I'm uh, very grateful to you. All right. That was Drew Ryder Smith, uh, country music singer from Nashville. He was on the podcast here, and uh, we'll see you next.